There are realities in the debate over undocumented labor in the U.S. that aren't often mentioned in American media. I've gone to starving-to-death agricultural villages in the back roads of Mexico. I've met the families that really need to send someone to the other side of the border without papers, just so the rest of the family doesn't go hungry. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves... David Lita investigates the family circumstances of Mexican nationals who are charged with serious crimes in the United States. Plus, learn what people are discussing and debating in the Slavic countries of the European Union. Bosnia is not in the EU, but EU is in Bosnia. Bosnia is not in NATO, but NATO is in Bosnia with their military bases. We'll peek into the political workings of Bosnia, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. If you're registered as a church, you can bend a lot of rules that you would normally have to abide as a political party. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes I'd swear the news sounds like fiction, and vice versa. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. An American journalist tells us how he's borrowed ideas from his side job as a legal investigator to write a suspenseful novel about the plight of the desperately poor in Mexico. Those who sneak into the United States to make a living but end up in big legal trouble. David Lita shares what he's learned from both sides of the border a little later in the hour. With all the news from Britain lately over its vote to leave the European Union and the efforts of nationalist parties in Europe to tighten their own borders we don't often get to hear how the news plays out in other countries. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by three of my friends from the Slavic world for a look at what they're talking about in response to the news coming from the Western countries of the EU. We're joined by Amir Talib... We're joined by Amir... We're joined by Amir Talibacirovic from Bosnia, Jana Hrankova from Czech Republic, and Marjan Kriskovic from Slovenia. Marjan, Jana, Amir, thanks for joining us. Thank you Thanks for, for having us. And why are your last names so hard for me to pronounce? <laughs> I guess they're all um, they're well, all Slavic. That's I think, the whole they? Slavic topic. Yes. Celebacherovic, <laughs> Rankova, and Kriskovic. <laughs> what is Ovic? Because two of you are Oviches. Yeah, you know these things about uh, father and son. You know, uh, oh, many cultures, and like diminutive, you know, smaller version. Telibichilovic is a smaller version of some guy who was Telibichil. And uh, Telibichilovic comes from two words, Teli and Bechil. Bechil was a personalist name, typical in Bosnia, and Teli is shorter from Telal. That was the, in Ottoman times, guy who was announcing news, you know, using ah, a drum. Okay, the, the yeah. earlier news broadcaster. And right. Marjan Kriskovic, that's hmm? pretty simple, son of Chris. Well, probably. <laughs> Something like that. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And Bosnia, Czech Republic, Slovenia. Are you all in the European Union? No. Bosnia is not. The Bosnia is not. Slovenia? Slovenia is. And we are, yes, from 2004. So now when Slovenia and when Czech Republic joined the EU, you got certain freedoms and you had to give up some of your sovereignty. When you look at it, what did you have to give up and what have you gained? And overall, has that been a good thing? Uh, Marjan. Well, I come from a country from, of only 2 million people, where in one or two hours you drive from one end to the other. So when we joined the European family, things became much, much simpler. The ease of traveling with the abolishment of the borders, uh, eventually a few years later, accepting the common currency, no longer dealing with all the different currencies with it before. And uh, on the other hand, people had no illusions that they will have to cede part of their sovereignty to Brussels and they won't be able to decide on the day-to-day affair, but they were willing to trade that in, in favor of becoming a part of a greater European future. So there is a reality. You can't have a union without giving up sovereignty. Of course. And there's good and bad for that. Yes. And overall, would you say there's more good or more bad for the people of Slovenia? I would definitely say overall much more good. 
And people are always reluctant to give part of their identity, smaller nations like Slovenes, a word of being overvoted and mm -hmm. uh, overpowered by larger neighbors, but uh, it is the only way. Because you worked very hard to get your independence, uh, you know, in the very whole true. communist Just time and with uh, <laughs> and in the wars and uh, breaking up of Yugoslavia. Exactly. Now your independence, what do you do? You give your independence to Brussels as part of a bigger family of nations. Hopefully the idea of the European Union would be strength and diversity. Strength in diversity. In diversity. Ah, yeah. E uh, pluribus unum, we have something similar to that here in the United States, <laughs> yes. you know, out of many one. And in theory, everybody's votes should count the same. But uh -huh. of course, the reality is the more powerful countries like Germany, Britain in the past, or well, France or so. They'll get more, more of a we'll voice. To assert our opinion. You're a, you're a small fish in a big exactly. pool, really. And, yeah. and struggling and trying to make ourselves heard. So it sounds like you would be pro-European Union uh, if you have countrymen who are anti-EU, as there are British just voted to leave it altogether, and, and there's more of that sentiment around Europe. What would the, the main complaint be from somebody in Slovenia about their membership in the EU? Well, a lot of people feel very alienated uh, by the concept of the European Union because uh, new rules, new laws are being made up in Brussels every day about this and that, and usually it's, um, it's a result of compromises. And people don't know that at home. They just see these new rules and laws being implemented that sometimes don't always serve their direct interest. Mm. See it as somebody from Brussels telling them what to do, as our own country not being able any longer to decide on daily affairs. And they don't understand the process behind it. Again, the whole give and take concept. This is something that I think Europe is... I mean, it's, everybody has their challenges, but in Europe, there's an understanding that there's diversity, there's many people living in close quarters, and we all have to give up a little bit to live together peacefully and, and happily exactly. and to have our independence. Jana, from the Czech Republic point of view, uh, what is the thinking about the European Union? What, what were the sacrifices and what are the benefits? Well, for us, uh, definitely, like when we joined the European Union in 2004, it was really like the the final process of becoming part of the uh, Western Europe or, or wider Europe, because mm -hmm. for really like 41 years since we were uh, part of the, the communistic bloc, we didn't have that independence and we wanted to become part of the wider Europe. So mm -hmm. when we joined in 2004, that most of the people were really very pro-Europeans, even though they were worried about so losing you were kind of realistic that you're going to have to be part of a big family one yeah. way or another. You can yeah. be dominated by Russia or you can be dominated exactly. by, you know, the European Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the, the whole idea at the time. But since we joined the European Union, a lot of uh, other difficulties appeared, really. Uh, talking about uh, all the different economical troubles, now the... Uh, crisis with the migrants and so on. And it's just showing in my point of view that like uh, many people from my country were not ready yet for uh, that change really and becoming... To give up sovereignty in exactly. order to have this union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would yeah. be a major complaint from somebody who was unhappy with the European Union in the Czech Republic? Well, uh, now, of course, the, the migrants crisis, really, mm -hmm. because we were not exposed uh, to all the different nationalities and things like that. So people are afraid that uh, they will lose their homeland. This is a rising concern in the United States with, uh, you know, the whole Trump uh, thing yeah, about build a yeah. wall and everything. And the same fear of refugees is happening and migrants in Europe. In fact, uh, we have a, an email from uh, James in Virginia Beach and in Virginia. And James writes, what impact do refugees have on Eastern Europe as they move through their way to their final destinations of Germany, France, or Belgium? First of all, when you have immigrants in a place like Czech Republic... Mm. 
Is that their final destination, or are they heading somewhere else? No, 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 definitely. Our country, Czech Republic, is just like a transfer country. They're not coming to stay there. They, they are not where, coming where to stay there. Where do they want there. to go? No, because, of course, uh, the main uh, main countries are Germany, Sweden. Those are the countries where they want to stay, really, and uh, like live over there and get also like the economical uh, benefits and, and things like that. But that's, for me, the most striking thing, that like a lot of uh, Czechs are worried about the migrants, but they are not staying over there. It's not that we have to give up so many stuff to... So there's really no downside politically or economically to yeah. the, quote, yeah, refugee yeah. crisis. That, that we have in so our country. So what makes it a crisis? Why do people consider it a crisis? Well, because they, many of them, they don't know what they will, will be witnessing. So it's kind of like, okay... Is, is it the media is, that there, makes there it bigger? There is a threat, of course. The media, uh, that uh, all these new things coming, uh, so, so people really like are threatened by things that are not actually happening in, in my country. Really. Well, this is interesting. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about uh, the Slavic view of the European Union. We're joined by Marjan Kriskovic from Slovenia, Jana Hrankova from Czech Republic, and Amir Talabacirovic from Bosnia. And there is this, um, this fear caused by immigrants and refugees. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Amir, in Bosnia, is that a political issue, the refugees and the immigrants? Uh, it's a political issue everywhere, but in Bosnia, uh, actually Bosnia is not on the route of the Syrian refugees. Okay. Uh, they, are, they are on the way to Germany and other countries in West Europe uh, without passing through Bosnia. So it's really not that um, much of an issue in No, that Bosnia. much, partly also because we have our own refugee uh. issues. You know, Bosnia is still recovering from the war in the 90s. I mean, recovered in, in many ways, you know, but there right. are smaller uh, issues it's still about returning of the refugees of our own, you know, and so on. So refugees actually, they don't need to go to walk through the Bosnia. Uh, they can simply pass it okay. know, around. And uh, I guess in Czech Republic, it's a transit country. Yeah. Tell me about the political dynamic. Do you actually have a right-wing uh, party that's being stronger because of this? Yeah, de- definitely. Definitely. It's, we have a lot of uh, like a people who are now using this subject, really, even though, as I said, we don't really have that many So they're making, uh, immigrants. It, a, uh, it's, making well, we, it really like a political issue, even though we, the, we are not... Uh, Why do people care then? I mean, how can people be afraid of if it's not a fear? Because we are part of the uh, of the European Union, really, and there was this this whole question about uh, the European Union quotas. How many refugees uh, will each country, each member of the European Union, uh, accept? Okay, so Marianne, about these quotas, does every country in the European Union promise to take some refugees to help alleviate this uh, humanitarian problem? Oh, I wouldn't say promise. They're actually told by Brussels they have to take so and so many mm-hmm. per, per capita. And some countries have already announced that have more, say, right-wing governments, that they will not be part of that whole mm-hmm. scheme. They will not take part of that, share that burden. So what's the big picture in Europe now just from the rise of right-wing governments and the fear of refugees? Well, regardless of what I guess a lot of your, uh, Americans might perceive Europe as very um, liberal, open, but the, the, the fact is its basis, its Christian identity is uh, predominantly white, quite conservative values. And a lot of people see themselves threatened, their lifestyle, their existence, their culture being threatened by this immigration, which is in such huge numbers that they're worried that their countries would not be able just to absorb it, but it would completely change the existence as they know it. Can European countries absorb these refugees and still be Denmark and Britain and Germany? 
Well, that is what uh, the people are torn about. I'm definitely sure they can, because if we compare it with uh, the numbers that were there in World War II or similar crises in uh, past decades and centuries, it always worked. But, of course, facing that fear so close, one doesn't always react rationally. Are we talking generally European Union, 400 million people, one million refugees to absorb? Exactly. So yeah. when you think about that, it's a quarter of a percent of the population it's a tragedy, Syria, it's a humanitarian thing, yeah. Europe is very wealthy, Europe is an older continent, and a lot of these refugees can vitalize the workforce, perhaps it can be a good thing. Definitely, and I see there are many chances and opportunities that Europe could take, uh, because its population is aging fast and actually needs young people, an influx of workforce, but uh, like I said, facing fears like that, people don't necessarily react rationally. There's lots more in just a minute with Marjan from Slovenia, Amir from Bosnia, and Jana from the Czech Republic as we get seldom heard Slavic perspectives on the news and their country's relationship with the European Union. You can add your comments to what you hear each week on Travel with Rick Steves. Look for our listener forum. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. In just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear what one American's been finding out about the lives of undocumented Mexicans who are facing serious criminal charges here in the United States and the families that depend on them back in rural Mexico. Right now, Guides from Czech Republic, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Slovenia are sharing what's making news in their countries. Our guests are Jana Horankova from Prague, Amir Talabacirovic from Sarajevo, and Marjan Kriskovic, who lives in Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. Amir from Bosnia, you're the one person at the table whose country is not in the European Union. Mm-hmm. Is Bosnia now happy they're not in the European Union because European Union is in uh, certain amounts of uh, turmoil? Or would it be, on balance, a good thing for Bosnia to join the family of European nations? Let me just say there is a political saying, economic and political saying, in the Balkan region that says there are three types of countries in Europe. Those that are member of EU, those that are non-member of EU, and Bosnia. It's so specific case that Bosnia is divided, politically divided. Not legally, but politically, and um, between neighboring countries, more or less, Croatia and Serbia. If Bosnia wants to join EU, it's hard to say because government is divided too over there. Ordinary people are, you know, too unemployed and they have their daily problems. If somebody tells them that they will have a lot of work and uh, their social problems will be solved if they join EU, vast number of people would support EU. But now I'm not sure if dominant feeling is either pro-EU or uh, against EU. There's another interesting thing about Bosnia. It's, Bosnia is not in EU, but EU is in Bosnia. That's in accordance to Dayton Peace Agreement uh, that was signed in Dayton, Ohio, uh, under Bill Clinton's administration that ended the war in Bosnia in 95 and 96. And according to that, European Union, together with NATO, that's another interesting thing, NATO as a military basis and American bases are in Bosnia. So we don't know how is that going to affect or So that is interesting. It's not as simple as are you in the EU or not. There's the Eurozone, there's the EU, and then there's uh, NATO, and Mm -hmm. there's different agreements. There's a lot of fringe countries that may not have the Euro, 
but they are in the EU or, oh, yeah. or, even, or yeah. even vice versa. Now, I understand in the European Union, everybody gives in money and then everybody gets out money and the rich countries give in more than they take out and the poor countries are net receivers. They give in less and they get out more. Czech Republic, Bosnia, Slovenia... Are your nations generally net givers or net receivers? Marianne from Slovenia? Uh, Slovenia is just around the new European average. So it, it depends on the year. It uh, can be net receiver, net giver. So you're it's probably right, right in the middle. Yes. We are more net receivers, really. And that's also like the most striking thing for me because we really like give less, receive more. Do people recognize that in the and, Czech and Republic? The, and the people do not really recognize it. And uh, that's my problem with uh, getting the people be informed about all the positive impacts. That, that's part uh, that of the, the dynamic EU. politically, along with the fear of the perceived fear of immigrants. Yeah, exactly. And Amir, your country is not in the EU. But if you did join the EU, I think Bosnia would clearly be a net receiver. You would give less yeah. and get more. Is there an awareness of that? I think so, but uh, there is not enough people who would uh, care about that among the politicians over there. Because we have uh, parts of the country where they, they are ruled by the Serbian government from the neighboring country with Bosnia and Serbia. That's a whole new topic, but I'm just trying to clear out. Mm -hmm. And the parts of the country that are receiving money from the na another neighboring country, which is Croatia. And the parts of the country that are under control of the central Bosnian government. So things are obviously more complicated uh, than that. We are both receivers and givers, and givers mostly in brains. I mean, in uh, young, talented students who are leaving country. To uh, go now that is a tragic uh, thing for a, yeah. a country that's on the fast track to catching up with the rest yeah. of the nations mm -hmm. to have a brain drain. Why mm -hmm. is there a brain drain in Bosnia? A lot of unemployment, a lot of corruption in uh, both in the central and the local governments. And uh, for so, if you're one, a local elite mm -hmm. who gets a great education yes. and wants to make a, a have a good profession, the thinking is, I won't find that in Bosnia. Yeah, you know, we, a little earlier we mentioned the uh, story of communism, life under communism. Over there in Bosnia, we still have uh, politicians who were member of communist party, and uh, now they're members of different kind of parties because communism is gone. But they're using more or less the same agenda just uh, known under different names over there. Now, that so, is interesting yeah. because I, I'm fascinated by the whole Cold War story and the communist experience of Yugoslavia and the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, but it, it's kind of like old news. I mean, it's been, what, 25 years since the fall of the wall. Bosnia, Czech Republic, Slovenia, all former communist states, you know, communism has been defeated, but the ghost of communism survives. Yeah. How is communism still felt in your political environment, uh, Jana, in Czech Republic? Well, I think the problem is that people, they don't really learn from uh, their mistakes, really, and what they went through during the communism. And they are kind of like still repeating the, the same stuff. And also it will take another, I would say, generation or two to get over it. Because we were part of the communistic bloc and uh, the people were told what they will do and what they should do, really. What they will like. And and it's still there, and the politicians what haven't do, learned, really. What do the old communists miss? What are they nostalgic for when they think of the good old days? Well, the things were easier, really. Everything was just great. You didn't have to do that much for the living, and everything was secured, really. Security, stability. Mm -hmm. Marianne, what, what dimensions of communism survive in Slovenia? Well, uh, some positive and negative. And of course, there's a big generational divide because one has to realize, as you pointed out, it's been 25 years. So there's a whole generation of college kids and older who would relate to this issue in the same way they would to Julius Caesar and Napoleon. It's, mm. it's not been that long. And yet at the same time, it's ancient history to the new generation. 
Their parents, on the other hand, might many times remember precisely what Jana was talking about, that aspect of security, the good old days. As time goes on, they tend to forget also some negative things and just the good thing of the good old days stay behind. But some vestiges remained in the public health care system, in administration, um, and, and again, some things are work better than others, so it's not all bad, it's not all good. Is that something that you're able to do as a former communist nation, is maintain a little bit of the communal sensibilities and at the same time embrace capitalism so you're free to be more prosperous? Uh, and- very much so, although it, it is getting, of course, a bigger challenge nowadays with stronger pressure like anywhere on the uh, lowering workers' rights and uh, increasing the working hours. and uh, So there's that capitalist pressure that is sort of goes exactly. with the corporate and mentality. The, a lot of things that people just simply got used to over time as seeing as their basic rights rather than perks that they enjoy. We're hearing Slavic perspectives on what's in the news lately, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Amir Telebacerovic from Bosnia, Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia, and Jana Hrankova from the Czech Republic. Amir, in Bosnia, you've got a society that has changed a little bit less maybe than Czech Republic and Slovenia since the fall of communism or not? Depends on which part of history you're talking about, the modern history. It changed a little, but for the worse. For the worst? Well, because of the war in the 90s. Oh, yeah. That affected Bosnia more than any other part of former Yugoslavia. But in the terms of economy, that's one of the reasons why do we have NATO troops still in the country. So Bosnia is not in EU, EU is in Bosnia, as I said. Bosnia is not in NATO, but NATO is in Bosnia with their military bases. So that's why it's difficult to see how is that going to uh, impact, you know, like the, if Bosnia will ever join. And then something else you mentioned, we, we forgot to mention that the Brexit was one of the topics. Mm-hmm. People in Bosnia, many of them are wondering, not just like in Bosnia and anywhere else, uh, including Bosnia, why are we joined to the union that looks like it's about to fall apart? But on the other hand, there are people who said, like, it's fine, Brexit, okay, Britain went out, we can maybe one day join in. So people are, those would be like kind of discussions that people would have in bar, ordinary people. Because that is still an ongoing issue, should Bosnia try to join the European yeah. Union. So just to wrap things up, I've got uh, two questions. First of all, from your point of view, because in the United States we have all sorts of frustrations going on now with our divided society and, and with our new president and so on, what is the main political frustration for you in your country? What saddens you about the political discourse? Amir, in Bosnia. Oh, many things. We don't have time for that to cover what uh, saddens us. Uh, starting with unemployment, of course. And uh, unemployment is so high that we don't know exact numbers because government is hiding exact, but we can say something over 40%. And uh, that's why we like to say that um, ATM, name for the ATM in Bosnia is a wailing wall. You know, the person can stand just like a willing wall in Jerusalem. You oh, know, no, and cry. stand in front of the bank machine. Yeah. So if, if a politician ATM. wants to be mm. successful, he better promise jobs. Yeah. Jana from Czech Republic, what's the main frustration politically for you? Uh, for me personally, it's really the Czech president that we have right now. Something like three years ago, we tried for the first time the public vote as well in, in our country. So already for three years, we were uh, under the Czech president named uh, Miloš Zeman. Miloš Zeman. Miloš Zeman, who uh-huh. who is uh, really proudly calling himself uh, the Czech Donald Trump. He's got a really uh, really bad impact on, on the people. So you, for three and years, have had a president who brags that he is like Donald Trump. Yes, and he's he's really constantly creating kind of like the, the fear between people, the, the fear that uh, the European Union is not over here to help us, but to really kind of like separate us. So the more and, frightened the people are, the stronger he will yes, be. Yes, exactly, exactly. 
And Marian from Slovenia, what is the main frustration for you in your country politically? In Slovenia, I believe the uh, general frustration is very much reflects the trend in so many other European countries, which is the frustration with the political establishment. The people's votes swing to the left, to the right, but it seems regardless of what the outcome of the elections is, a lot of people feel very frustrated and see the same faces, the same politicians in power, and nothing really changed regardless of what they, they feel. They are not empowered as voters really to bring on major change, which would be needed in these times. And there are some um, bizarre movements like the the universal zombie church of the sacred bell resulting wait, wait, in the universal movement. zombie yes. church of the sacred bell exactly it's that? a it's a movement that arose because they try to take advantage of the um, of the fact that if you're registered as a church you don't need to register a rally you can bend a lot of rules that you would normally okay. have to abide as a political party so they they can ridicule make fun of uh, politicians in front of the parliament and uh, show it as a big grand farce and reflect in fact the the frustrations and is the voters turnouts are lower and lower because they don't feel they're represented by either in Slovenia either side yeah this is travel with Rick Steves we've been talking about the slavic view of the european union with marian kriskovic from slovenia jana hrankova from czech republic and amir telebacherovic from bosnia Last question. In our country right now, we have a new president, and it seems like we're going to learn a lot more about Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin. Uh, I never thought Putin would be in the news so much, but he's with us almost every day. You guys have had a long awareness of who Putin is. I'll let you each just give America one little insight into how you know Putin from your country's perspective. Amir, from Bosnia, what's the experience with Vladimir Putin, the uh, leader of Russia? Well, in... um one part of Bosnia, which is dominant by the Serb culture, Bosnian Serb culture, who like to see themselves more closer to Russia. You can find the t-shirts with Vladimir Putin that says, my dream is to become a Serb. And, uh, but speaking of uh, his image, in the last 20 or so years, we had many Putins, many Trumps, smaller versions, but uh, as devastating as uh, they can be. They didn't have their finger on the uh, button for the nuclear weapons, but they were still devastating, you know, from mm-hmm. the time of Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia, later through the Croatian right-wings, then all kind of Bosnian, both right-wings and left-wings, and further on for to Macedonia and everything around. This was a dominant effect. So if Putin stays on power like this, or if Trump stays on power like this, uh, we can expect some domino effects soon. Domino effects meaning? Domino effects, political domino effects. Meaning more governments like that? Meaning more, more governments like that, and uh, more ordinary people who would support uh, politicians like that. Jana, from the Czech Republic, what's a lesson you've learned about Vladimir Putin that you might share with America? Well, my, my fear is that the, uh, they will like never give up. Because when we had our Velvet Revolution and we thought that, okay, this is when we will separate and we will live our own lives freely and in a democratic way. But then witnessing what was happening in Ukraine, really, that was really very, very scary for uh, for me. Like I'm saying, they will never give up. And now we are, so we are facing, faith, words, facing that problem Russia again. Russia can lose the Soviet Union, Czech Republic can have its uh, freedom and uh, the Russian uh, appetite for yep. power over it's other people again. is back. Yeah. You've seen it in Ukraine, and it makes you nervous in Czech Republic. Definitely. Marian from Slovenia. Um, Slovenia being geographically the westernmost Slavic country, we never were in the influence sphere of Russia. 
And so we don't have as much of the negative influence maybe as many other Slavic countries do, but there's still the concern of the human rights, poor human rights record in Russia. But on the other hand, we are a very small nation and the Slavic heritage and connection to Russia presenting great economic opportunities um, speaks for itself. And that's a, a, another issue that all of the European Union faces because whenever the European Union becomes too vocal in criticizing the um, human rights abuse in, in Russia, Russia just starts turning off the tap for oil and gas and Europe gets quiet. And Europe gets and quiet. that's the reality. And the yeah. Slavic brothers of Russia, like Serbia, like Croatia, Croatia, like Poland, like uh, Bulgaria, they feel, they feel the many economic. Times, they feel many times torn. They don't like what Russia is doing, but on the other hand, they're... They can strangle you economically. Also, exactly. There are many fears and opportunities. Fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the Slavic view of the European Union with Marjan Kriskovic from Slovenia, Jana Hrankova from Czech Republic, and Amir Telebacirovic from Bosnia. Thanks so much to each of you for sharing your perspective on the European Union in these fascinating times. Thank okay. you for Thank, thank you for pronouncing my surname. Telebacirovich. Poland's capital city, Warsaw, was devastated by World War II. After bombings, revolts, and the German effort to raise the city to the ground, by 1945, Warsaw lay in ruins. It was partially rebuilt by the communist government after the war, and in the two and a half decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, more effort has gone into restoring Warsaw's historical sites. On my last visit, I spent an entire day with my local Polish guide, Hubert. While I didn't do well in Hubert's language lessons, I did gain an appreciation for the resilience of the people and their culture. Walk with me and Hubert through a Warsaw park filled with Warsaw's former grandeur. As workers bang away with ongoing restoration work, we connect with Poland and its tragic yet beautiful heritage. What is the name of this park, Hubert? Łazienki, Royal Park. Łazienki. I have such a tough time with the Polish language. Uh, I know one word, Dzień Dobry, that means good day. Yeah. But uh, And then the, the main street is uh, Jerusalem Street. How do you yeah. say that? Aleje Jerozolimskie. Again? Aleje Jerozolimskie. Okay, so <laughs> that's a, there's a lot of difficult <laughs> words. But what we are talking about here is just how this, this city, this magnificent city, has come back to life in the last generation. And this is the, the Royal Park, and it's just dotted with beautiful neoclassical buildings. And we were talking about uh, the Orangerie, which is just up there. And uh, they had 400-year-old uh, orange and lemon trees. And, and what happened to those trees? Well, actually, um, that Orangerie survived until the First World War. And uh -huh. in 1915, nobody took care about that Orangerie. So the final result that those all beautiful trees, some of them 400 years old, they froze, froze. to death. And then here, we call this the Water Palace, uh, the king, the, the, the last king of Poland, what was his name? Stanislav August Poniatowski. Again? Stanislav August Poniatowski. <laughs> he was a great art lover, apparently. He was a lover of a lot of things, quite an enlightenment kind of guy. Every Thursday he would have a, the inner circle sit together and talk about enlightened ideas. But he had how many paintings in his collection? 2,289 paintings, including Rubens. And how many survived until the end uh, of World War II? Approximately 100. So we're looking at the remnants of a magnificent civilization. We're learning a lot about it. And the spirit of, of the Polish people is quite an inspiration. I'm Rick Steves. We're in Warsaw.
There's a side to the debate over undocumented immigration from Mexico that doesn't get talked about much in the United States. Coming up, David Lita tells us what he's found as a legal investigator checking into the circumstances of Mexican nationals who've been charged with serious crimes here in the United States. He's written a novel based on what he's seen on both sides of the border, and it's getting high praise for the insights it shows us. David joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. The first time New Yorker David Lita visited Mexico City, he knew it was the kind of place he could call home. He found it shared the energy of New York, but with a flamboyant sense of style and a welcome you might expect to find in a much smaller city. That was 27 years ago, and David has no plans to leave. In addition to being a journalist, David works as a mitigation specialist, investigating the lives and circumstances of undocumented Mexicans who are charged with capital crimes in the United States. He borrows many of the themes of these real-life human dramas for his new novel called One Life. It takes the reader into a side of Mexico and the U.S. justice system that few of us on either side of the border ever hope to encounter. David, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. So, David, give us just a a thumbnail description of your book. What's the story? It's a story about an undocumented Mexican woman named Esperanza who's in jail in Louisiana, accused of murdering her 11-month-old baby, and the guy, Richard, who is hired to investigate her life story, trying to get them not to give her the death penalty. It's a book about life and death, Mexico and the United States, and it's also a love story. It's inspired by my own experience as a mitigation specialist. I began to do this work about 10 years ago. I'm hired by capital defense lawyers who have as clients undocumented Mexicans. And in that work, I've gone to starving to death agricultural villages in the back roads of Mexico. I've met families that really need to send someone to the other side of the border without papers, just so the rest of the family doesn't go hungry. And I've also seen the outskirts of towns and cities in the U.S. where the undocumented form an integral part of the workforce, paying their taxes, but without the rights and privileges of citizens. Now, of course, this is drawn from your experience interviewing all of these people over the years. So you must have been very attentive to all of these various clients of yours and collecting all of these vivid images. Thanks. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, from the first day working this job, I knew that I was hearing incredible stories that many people, not only in the United States, but even my friends in Mexico City didn't know about. And I thought this would make a great book. It took me a while to figure out what book I had to write and how to write it, but I I knew I was being handed this incredible material. This mitigation specialist, you're not a lawyer. You're hired by a lawyer to do the background work, I understand, finding mitigating evidence so these people won't be executed. They may be guilty of something, but is it your job to show that life is so tough for these people they need a break? Is that basically it? Uh, Basically, that's true. All of the cases that I have worked on 
the clients have been involved in a murder. They might not have actually pulled the trigger, but they've been involved in one way or another. I only had one case where the client was innocent. The rest of them, they have been guilty of something. But we're not trying to get them out on the street. We're not trying to claim that they're innocent when they're not. We're just trying to avoid the death penalty. We're trying to come to a negotiation with the prosecutor. Is that actually a possibility in our legal system that you can just pull on the heartstrings of prosecutors and say, come on, this person had a tough life. You don't need to execute him. Just lock him up forever. Absolutely. I'll give you one example, a very concrete example. According to United States law, if somebody is mentally ill, you're not supposed to give them the death penalty. I'm not saying it never happens. So, for example, if I come up with evidence of mental illness, of frontal lobe brain damage, of what's considered a serious, verifiable mental illness, then that is a mitigating circumstance across the board. The prosecutor can't go for the death penalty. Mm, I mean, unfortunately, it does happen from time to time, but... No, your main um, character, well, Richard is the character that must be like you, and then Esperanza is the client, and that means hope, doesn't it? Yes, Esperanza means hope. And uh, her life, uh, let's talk about this reality of undocumented uh, Mexicans in America, because there's three things. There's their reality south of the border, there's the ordeal of getting over the border, and then there's the reality of living in the shadows here in the United States, and then there's the reality of dealing with our government. So if we could just take a few minutes, David, and and talk about this. First of all, these are worlds largely unknown to most of us, and, and you know them quite intimately. Talk about the kind of desperation of somebody's reality south of the border that drives them to need to cross the border. You talk about these two donkey villages and so on. You know, I'm well aware that there's poverty in the United States, and there's a lot of people who are up against it, and a lot of people who are not doing as well as they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. However, there is no poverty in the United States like poverty in Mexico. In Mexico, I mean, I've been to villages. I was in one place in the middle of nowhere in the state of Puebla. There were only two paved streets in this village. Everything else was mud shacks made out of mud and, you know, holes in the wall for windows, animals running down through the mud. When I got to my hotel, which was in the next village, because there wasn't even a hotel in the one I was working in, I turned on the TV and there was some show, a documentary about shantytowns in South Africa. And I'm not kidding. They look better than the village that I was working in Mm. with this family. These people, particularly people who live off the agricultural economy in, in Mexico, are literally on the brink of hunger. Some of them are malnourished. Even if somebody in the United States is sending them $25 a month or or, or something paltry like that, it can mean the difference between them eating or not eating that week. Is there a a risk that we romanticize poverty and think, ah, they've got this easygoing, no-stress life, take a siesta, have a beer in the evening? There's nothing romantic about it, believe me. No way to put a romantic spin on it. I've been doing this work for 10 years now, and there is nothing romantic about Mm -hmm. it. I mean, they're not sitting under a tree. They're struggling, working very long hours, usually at physical, back-breaking work, Mm -hmm. just to make ends meet. You wrote about um, Leo's uncle, who taught a character uh, how to eat with no food. That that kind of illustrates this desperation. This actually was an anecdote that someone told me about how He had been shunted off. There were too many children in the family, and he had been shunted off to a distant relative. He was about eight years old, and this guy said to him, I'm not going to give you anything to eat, but I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to teach you how to eat. 
he told him that he should go to the market, this little boy, and look for women who are carrying their packages of groceries home and offer to carry the packages home. He also taught the kid how to palm an avocado in his hand and stick it in his pocket. And then he said to him, if you cry outside the bakery, someone will feel sorry for you and give you a bread roll, a little one peso bread roll. And the kid in his innocence at eight years old asked his uncle, how am I supposed to cry if I don't feel sad? And the uncle smacked him across both cheeks and said, remember how that feels and then you'll start crying. I did find a way to put that story in the book, as I found many stories that people told me. What a wonderful writing challenge to collect all of this disparate pile of, of anecdotes and images and, and weave it into this amazing story. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is David Lida. He's a former New Yorker who's been living for years now in Mexico City. He's written his first novel, One Life, to highlight the kinds of people and circumstances he encounters investigating the lives of Mexican nationals facing trial in the United States for capital crimes. The book has received high praise from reviewers for how David exposes hidden realities on both sides of the border. David first joined us on Travel with Rick Steves several years ago to talk about his earlier book, First Stop in the New World in which he describes how Mexico City is growing in importance among world capitals. We have a link to that earlier interview in the notes with this week's show. You'll find that at ricksteves.com slash radio. I was curious, reading through your book, David, about the kind of social world people would have in what you call the two-donkey village. Is there a normal social world, or are all people threatened by each other, and is it kind of dog-eat-dog? That's a good question, Rick. And I think, you know, maybe life in New York is more doggy dog than... I I mean, it isn't so much that people are against each other, Mm -hmm. but you don't have many benevolent people in the upper classes because there there are upper classes in these towns Mm -hmm. who have the best jobs or who work for the government or whatever. But there's so many poor people that they don't feel any responsibility about spreading their wealth. If they did, you know, they couldn't. They're not wealthy enough to take care of all these people. But I don't think it's so much that the poor are scrounging against each other to get fed. I think they're probably more likely to be fed by each other. Like if I, mm-hmm. if I were of that social class and I went to my neighbor or a relative and said, look, have you got anything, you know, uh, just to tide me over till next week, they would help me, you know, more than a rich person in the town would. Okay, David, so that's the sort of the reality south of the border. And then the dangerous trip north and crossing the border is something that's a big part of your book. And it never even occurred to me the reality of a penniless young person who has to sleep in the heat of the day and then travel at night and worry about looking for shade and walking by the bodies of people who have been left behind and vivid images. Can you talk a little bit about that ordeal and that reality of just getting to the border? As a consequence of more strict border enforcement, the hiring of more and more border patrol, making it more difficult for people to get across the border, it hasn't necessarily stopped everyone, but it's just become much more of an ordeal. Literally hundreds of people, undocumented Mexicans and Central Americans, have died in the desert because they can't get through at least with any ease in the near cities where they used to. So they have to take these very long treks through the desert, sometimes for days on foot. Some of them don't even make it, but they're so hungry, they're in such desperate straits that they're going to try regardless. 
the image that you had of, I think it was a couple of children, and one girl was afraid of dying because she saw the carcass of something left behind and just didn't want to be picked at by predators. And then she looked at those discarded shoes on the trail, and, yeah. and she wondered, who's going barefoot? I did a lot of research for those chapters in which Esperanza crosses the border to get to the United States. And I found situations like that where people found shoes that were discarded, shirts that were discarded, somebody's address and telephone number on a piece of paper. And I wondered, what would possess you to Mm. abandon your shoes? Mm. And I could only imagine that it would be, you know, your feet hurt so badly that you felt you had to get rid of them. I can only imagine how difficult it is for these people who are trying to get across the border. But a lot of people are going to say, but no, they're Mexicans, we're Americans, we're rich, they're poor, we have to build a wall so we don't get overrun by all these desperate poor people because it's going to mess us up. I mean, I think that's the stance of people who, who would want to build a wall. I mean, it's a complicated thing. There's the morality of, of desperate people. They're just fellow human beings, even though they're from a di- they got different passports or don't even have a passport. There's the reality that they're an essential part of our workforce here in our country that we don't even know what it would happen if we didn't have them, you know, filling in that lower echelon of workers. And then there's the thought of, okay, if they're driven north for relief, what can we do to help them have a more sustainable life so they don't have to go north? How do you weave all of that into your thinking? Because you've been living this challenge for, for years now. It's a very good question and a very complicated question. And I'll try to break it down in the simplest terms possible. Number one, building a wall is not going to work because it's been proven. I mean, there are areas of the border where there is a wall and people go around the wall, they go under the wall, they go over the wall. It's not like building a wall is going to make that huge a difference. Stopping people with a physical wall, in your opinion, is just a pipe dream. Exactly. Uh, And and a very, very expensive one. One that the money that it would cost, you know, these would be our tax dollars and that money could be better spent on more important projects. The other thing that I wanted to say is that most people in the United States, including the president, how many generations back do you have to go to when that family was an immigrant family? I mean, the United States is a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So to suddenly Satanize and demonize all immigrants. I mean, my mother was was a refugee of World War II. She was a Polish Jew who who, who was allowed in the United States after the war. And my my father was a first-generation immigrant, also from Poland. And uh, to me, just like suddenly demonize and Satanize undocumented immigrants is a pretty unfair way for this country to proceed. I mean... I do think that it's important that politically we need to have a sustainable and coherent immigration policy. Before Trump, several presidents in a long line in their campaign, they promised to have a good, sustainable, coherent immigration policy. And of course, all of them reneged on that promise. Now, having said this, I mean, it's really important to say the following. The Mexican government finds it very convenient that a bunch of their citizens want to escape the country and go to the United States, because that means that the Mexican government doesn't have to do anything to take care of those people. Mm -hmm. And I I do believe that Mexico is shirking its responsibility to its poorest citizens. There's a lot of inequality in Mexico. David Lee is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves, and David's distilled the real-life drama he's encountered as a legal mitigation specialist in Mexico into his novel called One Life. David's website is davidlita.com, and that's spelled L-I-D-A. 
So, David, we've talked about the desperation in, in a poor Mexican's life south of the border. We've talked about the ordeal of getting north and across the border. What's the reality, from your experience, of an undocumented laborer living in the shadows here in the United States? I have been to towns and cities where the outskirts, neighborhoods on the outskirts, are filled with the undocumented. I read something the other day that said the undocumented pay $12 billion a year in taxes in the U.S. And I can tell you that if the undocumented were to disappear from these communities overnight, there would be no one left to make a bed in a hotel, to garden, uh, prune a tree, to cook a meal in a restaurant, to work in a slaughterhouse, to do a lot of jobs, uh, construction jobs. To watch our um, grandparents. In, I mean, it's amazing how many, uh, the reality exactly. of, of if we didn't have these people. They're an integral part of the U.S. economy, and therefore I think it's hypocritical to talk about disappearing them. And inhumane, too. So there are these communities on the outskirts of towns all over the United States. Yes. What's the fear that they live with? Because my understanding is, lately, there's a lot of anxiety. There is. I mean, especially since Trump was elected, a lot of the undocumented are being deported, but it's in a very arbitrary way. They are not criminals. The only crime that they have committed is being undocumented. It's not because they have done anything else wrong. Families are being separated. Children are being separated from their parents. And this is a travel show, and so many millions of us go to Mexico on vacation, and it's like there's two worlds that are parallel. You could go to Mexico and completely be oblivious to the reality of a major slice of the Mexican society in our travels. When we go to Cancun or, or Mazatlan or Puerto Vallarta, what can we do to actually splice in a little bit of reality so we also can have that opportunity to humanize uh, this reality for so many people? You know, Rick, the first time I went to Mexico, I went to a little beach town called Puerto Escondido in Oaxaca, and that is precisely what I did. I walked about three blocks behind the Malacón, where the beach was, and I saw these shacks, these desperate shacks, where the most desperate sector of the town lived. And I realized that there was this big difference between what I was experiencing in my visit to Mexico and what many of the Mexicans lived with in Mexico. And ever since then, I've been curious about that, and I feel like with this work... With mitigation, I finally got to go inside those shacks and talk to those people. Yeah, I kind of knew the answer to my question because that was a very powerful experience for me. I took my family to uh, Mazatlan, and on the shuttle in from the airport, it occurred to me, 90% of the tourists, they go from the airport directly to the resort, actually sort of intentionally not knowing the reality. And we took a simple walk into the neighborhoods, and it gave a whole other dimension to the experience. And I'm, I'm so thankful we did because... That's the reality. And when we travel, when we have the opportunity to travel, we can strive to gain a better and a more honest understanding of that reality. I've always done that as a traveler. I, I know that not every traveler has the will or the imagination to do that, but I think it would open up any traveler's experience to get beyond the hotel, beyond the beach, beyond the restaurant to see how the people who live in that place live. David Lita, your book, One Life is an Inspiration, and it's just a vivid read. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and best wishes with your work. Thank you. It's a pleasure, as always, Rick, to be on your show. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We also had help from the crew at the Radio Foundation in New York City this week. 
You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests and the notes for each week's show. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.